is the broadcast on Poets at War, Inkling-style Discord chat, last Friday of every month. And now, the broadcast. And beginning recording. Yep, that looks about right. You want to say something? Something. Hmm, something. The old. I have obeyed instructions. <laughs> oh, boy. So. Let's see. Let's see. I got my webcam working. Look at that. Is it all working on your end? Oh, you want to... You want me to have a webcam? Uh, you can if you want to. You don't have to. It's totally optional in the broadcast. I've just been wanting to do mine, and it hasn't been working for some stupid firewall reason or another, and just started trying it again recently and testing it and getting it to work. There you are. Tis I. You've got upstairs. <laughs> what? You've got upstairs. I do have upstairs, yes. Last time we spoke, I was in the upstairs, but... For ease of interest. Oh, hello, Alex. Hello, how are you? There he is. Going off. How are you guys? Pretty good. Pretty good. Webcam optional. I finally got mine working. So, cool. Uh, but yeah. So the three amigos are here. We'll see who else trickles in. She but uh I know, right? Uh have you seen Hey, you came up with it. Uh, had you seen the three amigos, Brendan? I think I we talked about this. We talked about yep. the I need to see the three amigos, apparently. Yep. It is Sonata. A long list of movies I need to see. <laughs> I hear that. Yeah, I still have a pretty big list, but it's mostly movies that like people take really seriously when they talk about them. And like I I, I I want fun, so <laughs> it's one of those things. <laughs> uh, one of the one of the one of the big ones that comes to mind is uh, well, the two that I used to get mixed up all the time. Now I have them completely straight. Are just because of the name Shawshank Redemption and Schindler's List. So, uh, yeah, Shawshank is great. I haven't seen Schindler's List, so. Nazi movies, unless there's Indiana Jones opposing them. A little bit of a drag, usually. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Jojo Rabbit was fun. And it's a weird, Jojo Rabbit's amazing. Way. Jojo Rabbit is my favorite movie. That's right. You've talked about that before. That's awesome. Yep. Had you seen that one, Brendan, or no? Oh, hello. I have not seen Jojo Rabbit's. But I have seen parts of it. Mm -hmm. I saw the opening. Well, not the, but the. I saw when when I call the Heil Hitler scene. That is correct. Um, tis amusing. <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's hard to believe that the same guy who made Jojo Rabbit also made Thor: Love and Thunder. Yep, Taika Waititi. He did Ragnarok, too, and I like Ragnarok. He did Ragnarok. Ragnarok is fun, but Love and Thunder just goes so far off the rails. <sighs> yeah. I, I I I stopped at the last Spider-Man just because that was so fun that I wanted to have 
like huh? I wanted I wanted to hold there for a little while. <laughs> yeah. I'll eventually catch up. <laughs> Man. Not completely. Not completely. Mm-hmm. There's some stuff I'm definitely skipping, period. But you know. Yeah. It, yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> East. I just I I've it's not like I mean I I've never been a huge fan of the superhero genre to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um unless you count anime because some anime characters in anime are basically superheroes despite the fact that they're not superheroes. Right. Mm. Right. All uh, you know, you got you, like they just sort of change why they have superpowers. It's just a different flavor of superpower. It's magic. It's mm-hmm. innate special talent. It's their legendary heroes. It's whatever, you know. Right. Um so, but like that was one thing about Ragnarok that I really appreciated. The Thor versus Hulk fight <laughs> was and it was an anime fight. Oh yeah. It was in live action. And I was like, I was so happy that they did that because it's friend from work. Look, this can be done. It can be done, and it can work. That was India. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I think my favorite was the um, as far as action in Ragnarok was the wolf on the rainbow bridge situation. That's just so, uh, so Norse fun, crazy, over the top mythology. You know, um, they tried yeah. really hard in Thor one to make everything like super serious when it came to Asgard. And then we got to actually have some fun. <laughs> Just play Thor Ragnarok. Oh yeah. Uh, so well, the the Thor franchise is probably the weirdest franchise of all of the Marvel universe because the first one was directed by Kenneth Branagh, mm-hmm. who directs Shakespeare. Yep. Like that. That's that's his stuff. And he then, did a good job with it. I like Thor. He did. I think it's way better than people give it credit for. It it's better than people give it credit for. Thor 2 is also better than people give it credit for. It is completely different. But it has very little bearing on either the big plot or its own plot. It's kind of just like, yeah. this happened and then this happened. But there's a lot of yeah. good stuff in it. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they had to set up the Aether, which right. is why it existed. Exactly. But, yeah. And then they go, com- they throw all of the levers in the complete opposite direction for Ragnarok. And it worked really well. Because it led directly into Infinity War, and you dropped the humor and got a much more serious Thor. And then Endgame makes Thor a joke, and then Taika turns the joke up to 14 in Love and Thunder and completely kills the character. Yeah. Like, Thor is dead now. (laughs) The character that we now call Thor that exists in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, he's not Thor. He's simply not. Which is sad. Yeah. I I think Thor's redemption arc in the first one is one of the best in all of the MCU. A lot of people don't talk about it that much, but I really, really feel the pain of him and Odin and the feigned pain of Loki, like the whole experience of Thor's, Thor being outcast. There's some really fantastic acting that is Branagh or Branham will have a crowd doing his thing, you know, as far as mm-hmm. getting these guys to get proper reaction. Of course, Anthony Hopkins probably helping a lot too. Like, I'm so oh, yeah. Yeah. But not just his acting, but helping the other guys, you know, yeah, everything. So, uh, both directly and indirectly by his, you know, giving them something to react off of. <laughs> yeah. So, 
that that seems to happen whenever you have a cast of most everybody in the cast of Thor was kind of newer actors, right? Like uh, yeah, so Portman and Natalie well. Portman, yeah. And I'm not sure about Stellan Skarsgård, but whenever you have a cast of like newer actors, and then you have one actor who's like an experienced vet- veteran, that tends to elevate the movie. Yeah. Especially because that. everybody, Anthony Hopkins caliber, you know. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you know Alec Guinness from the original Star Wars. Yes. Do you know? Do you know how they got him to be in the movie? Because he was the big star. I vaguely recall this, but remind me. Okay. He hated the script. Yeah. Couldn't stand it. Thought it was the worst written script he'd ever seen. He knew that it was going to be big and went to his agent and said, okay, I hate this script. We're doing it. I want 10% of the franchise. Mm. And they gave him 10% of the franchise. Holy smokes. So that's the greatest deal ever made in Hollywood. Yeah, it's it was it was a smart decision. I heard Matt Damon was offered ten percent of Avatar and turned it down to continue with the board movies. And just <laughs> so yeah, Brendan. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm just I'm just wondering how many of them were new actors, right? Because you have like, okay, so I'm thinking of Lord of the Rings, right? Ian McKellen, um, oh gosh, what's her? Uh, Kate Blanchett. Uh-huh. Uh, they all like like I, I at least know about those two because those two I guess Christopher Lee, I believe, also those two explicitly mentioned in the behind the scenes that they do they did theater work, right? They didn't air before going into movies. Now that's not surprising because, you know, at British acting. British acting, you do theater. Well, I think the same is true of um Tom Hiddleston. Uh, or, or so you have now he's still not as experienced as Anthony Hopkins, but, <laughs> but Anthony Hopkins incidentally also wrote a waltz at least. <laughs> really, he wrote a full blown symphony waltz. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, is it in a fair amount of music actually, from what I understand? But yeah, uh, there's a YouTube video of it. That's the only reason I know that. Um, <laughs> well, like. So he, I, he still would have been like the leader actor, probably, mm-hmm. or a, or a very prominent thing. But his role in the movie is relatively small because it's still Chris Hemsworth's movie in a way. That um, I don't know. I'm sure like Chris doesn't look super young to me, in the sense that, I mean, he's young, but he's not like. I feel like he should have gotten like a couple of gigs before starting on Thor. He's not like Orlando Blue. Wasn't him Master yeah. and Commander? Cast as Legolas. Yeah, wasn't him Master and Commander? Chris Hemsworth. Uh, Hemsworth? Probably. I could Google that. But I, I think you'll remember, remember Chris Hemsworth and Master and Commander. I maybe in a sec. No, no. Well, you're thinking, uh, I know that, um, I know that, uh, oh gosh, what, I don't know his name, but he plays um, Stretch in, uh, the Fantastic Four. He plays William Wilberforce in. Uh, oh, yeah, I, I know he's in there. Yes. He, um, apparently, Billy Boyd was in Master and Commander. He was. He's great in it. Chris Larkin. Is a puppet. I can't name in Master and Commander, but I don't. 
Yeah, maybe not Hemsworth. No. Okay. I was wrong. He apparently is. Married. Okay. So he did a couple of things. He was in two, three, four, five, six, six TV shows. One of them is a regular. Uh, then he was in Star Trek is Kirk's dad. That's right. And yep. bit part. Uh, perfect getaway, cash, and then Thor. So he was a TV show regular in three movies and then Thor. And then he gets hit. And then he gets cast as Thor. You know who was uh, one of the big tryout celebrity tryouts for the role of Thor? Who? I say big celebrity. Mm-hmm. Triple H. The, pro- the professional wrestler, Triple H. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I like how you're like Triple H and that both of the other two of us are like, we don't know who that is. And I'm sitting here and that's a professional wrestler. <laughs> yeah. You know Joshua's past. That's a professional Yeah, but that's not like an obscure, per- like he's on the level of The Rock and stuff like that, like as far as wrestling goes and he's the sub- rock And uh, the guy who was... In the second Suicide Squad movie, I think. He... John Cena? Yeah, him. That guy. Those are literally <laughs> the only two people I know. You know Stone Cold Steve Austin? Wow. I heard the Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan. You know Hulk Hogan. Macho Man Randy Savage. How did I not know Hulk Hogan? He was in movies like all throughout the 90s. Suburban Commando is a piece of hilarious modern cinema. Do you know who my dad is? I know who your dad is, and I'm saying your dad would love Suburban Commando. Your dad would love Suburban Commando. I would I would pay money to watch Suburban Commando with your father. I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, hey, whenever, whenever you have the bird con, we should make that happen. Yes. <laughs> Which we still want to do that, but I, I don't know if it's going to end up happening even doing the online one this year, the way things are going. I've just been so moody. But, um, okay, so... Uh, an interstellar hero from a distant world visits Earth and tries to fit in with a mundane yet kind suburban family. 1990. Uh, uh, well, that sounds like cringe. Oh, it is. It is. It is amazing cringe. 1991. Uh, starring Hulk Hogan and the uh, who is the the interstellar bounty hunter character. Of course. He is. And and the the, the father of the suburban family that he gets involved with Christopher Lloyd oh it is so bad and so funny but like okay it's it's 90s bad like it's 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 light fun goofy fun bad you know like like a like a Beethoven movie or something right so anyway but yeah go ahead what were you saying that Chris anything with Christopher Lloyd in it is at least worth watching once I argue all the goofy family movies he was in in the 90s are, every single one of them is, like, super underrated in its own. Hey, even this one. Like, he's just, mm-hmm. he brings such a fun, stupid character moment to, like, everything he does. I, I've always loved Christopher Lloyd. There's a really obscure movie. It came out in, like, 2011, I want to say, called Jack and the Beanstalk, A Tale with a Twist. Have either of you heard of it? Ah, uh, vaguely, I've, I think I remember seeing it in, like, Blockbuster. Uh-huh. It is a actually surprisingly good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's The Tale of Jack and the Beanstalk, 
but it also weaves in a bunch of other fairy tales. Mm -hmm. And among other things, Christopher Lloyd is the teacher who is teaching everybody history. Uh, behind him on the chalkboard, a flux capacitor is drawn. And the uh, goose that lays the golden egg is played by Gilbert Godfrey. <laughs> it's really good. In a giant, in a giant goose suit, it's <laughs> Gilbert Godfrey, and it's amazing. Oh, that's just fun. Godfrey. What's it with Gilbert Godfrey and playing birds? You're right. Like, maybe I mean, people just think he sounds like a bird. I don't know. Uh, I don't know why you would think a guy who sounds like this would be a good bard. Or let alone three. <laughs> At least three. <laughs> Uh, I was gonna say, um, he was a three. Iago, the Affleck duck. Affleck duck. The Affleck duck is the other one. Yeah, that I was thinking of. He probably played another bird at some point in time. More than likely, he also played the cricket in Thumbelina in the nineties. It's a class one. Uh, is that the animated one? Yes, which is also underrated, but suffers from nineties Don Bluth syndrome, where he's like. We just need to get this out and make money because we're sinking right now. <laughs> we need more land before time sequels. I was going to say, though, Christopher, go back to Christopher Lloyd. Um, I think besides the page master, my favorite role of his, and, and of course, Doug, uh, my favorite role of his that no one ever mentions unless you're talking baseball movies, and even then, sometimes it's too obscure as Angels in the Outfield. He plays, like, oh, yeah. the, the main angel who visits the kid in, in uh, Angels in the Outfield and tells him we're all always watching. And there's just such a uh, really uh, uh, whimsical, you know, he can say we're always watching and not make it creepy. Like, you make it feel like, I'm I'm taken care of, you know what I mean? Like, it, he does such a good job with that. So, um, but yes, that's a that's a fun movie. Has you either of you seen that one? I know that I've seen it, but it's not. I watched Angels in the Infield, the sequel. Oh god, yeah, that's horrible. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, I I remember bits and pieces of it, and I'm like, oh yeah, I probably shouldn't have watched that until about that. Outfield, there's there's this one moment that's just one of my funny, my favorite like cutaway gag style funny moments in any movie you've got it starts out with this uh situation where the 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 manager of the club has to drive these two kids back to their foster home and he uh says come on get in the car you know whatever he's like be all gruff and whatever and uh, he's watching these kids because he thinks they're good luck charms because they keep winning games because of the angels blah 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 he's like okay i'm gonna take you home let's, let's go let's get in the car and one of the kids is very silently, like almost like autism level going nonverbal, like refusing to get in the car without saying anything, right? And, and his buddy goes, mm -hmm. "JP doesn't ride in cars," and he says, "His his mom, uh, uh, his his mom wrecked and died in a car," and it's like this really heavy, somber moment. And then, like he, it, uh, the the manager like looks at the kid, and it's like the first time he really has any kind of connection with them, and then cutaway he's driving them home on the team bus <laughs> i need to watch the movie again oh, it is 
that one joke is worth the whole movie in my opinion. It's so well timed. Like you got Danny Glover doing it's like super, you know, serious Danny Glover stuff as the manager, and then all of a sudden, well, Brandon. <laughs> love it. Love it. Did either of you guys uh, bring something to look at? I mean, I have the second half of my of the thing that I read last week, but oh yeah, last month, last whatever, whenever it was, whenever time time is relative. <laughs> no, time's not well. Yeah, time is relative. Time is shifty. I just get I just get the wrong. It's, it's less, I know that it was a month. I just get the wrong word. <laughs> Oh, boy. Well, I definitely want to hear that when we get to it. Uh, I guess we're just kind of seeing if anyone else shows up. Yeah. A little odd, but I guess people have been busy. Things are getting warm. People are staying out later, whatever. But, yeah, so I... um... Meanwhile, the brood is making some. Yeah, the brood is favorite All the song references. See, I was gonna go with like, if I, nobody knows what it's like to be Batman. <laughs> no one knows what it's like to be Batman. Wait, <laughs> so maybe Bruce Wayne. <laughs> oh, you know what I get tired of. What? Batman's the real person. Bruce Wayne is his character. It's all turkey cut. It's like the dumbest hot take ever. It's like, I don't necessarily disagree with it, but it's just it's something. It's a hot take. Right. It's half of the comic. Right. It was Batman saying that, basically. What? Yeah. It's a hot take. Stop it. <laughs> it's just one of them things. It's like, it's like as, as ubiquitous as, like, it's not free. It's not. Uh, Frankenstein, it's Frankenstein's monster. Isn't it? Yeah. Because <laughs> wonderful comic about that, where it's like, oh, it's Frankenstein. Actually, Frankenstein's the site that is the Frankenstein's monster's monster. And then it's like, like, like that's a normal person. Then Pedant says that. Then Super Pedant. The Super Pedant says, actually, do you think about it? The guy who made the monster is really the monster because he left it out on its own. And then, super, super pedant. Actually, if you think about it, society is the monster for causing monsters to be out. And wait, listen, super, super, super pedant. Listen, everybody's just a jerk. <laughs> there is no... <laughs> then the person who is historically familiar with it is like, no, the monster is actually Percy Shelley. Either way. Have either of you read uh, Monsters from the Id? It's on the Canon app. I'm aware of it, but I have not read it now. I am awful with books if they're not in paper in front of me. It's just like, it's too easy to go, what? Shit. Yeah. I, I, I do audiobooks, primarily. But uh, as far as actually reading, yeah. I, I can't read an ebook. I, I can barely reference a game book on pdf but yeah it's it's a really interesting look at the history of horror from frankenstein uh he hits a little bit on like greek myths and the elements that inspired later horror artists but 
primarily it starts with Frankenstein and uh, Lord Byron and all of that going on at Lake Geneva into Dracula and going all the way up to Alien. And it's it's really interesting. E. Michael Jones, the guy who wrote it, is kind of an anti-Semite, which is terrible. But yeah, it, it's a good book. None of, you, none of you saw me. Harry has. Hello. Hello, Ian. Uh, hi. Uh, how, how long have you been on? Since 2008. Like, yeah, we started when we said we were going to start. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, I, I was waiting for some kind of notification or something to tell you, to tell me you were on. I, I'll make sure to... I really don't understand. I do not understand your modern technology. <laughs> I said we'd be on at 8. You go on at 8. I was waiting for a little blurb to come up and say, you're on. You can join the conversation now. I. That's what I was waiting for. And it never came. <laughs> well, I'll make sure to do that next time. So we can, we can make efforts to remember. Mm-hmm. Oh, don't make efforts to remember. I just had to, I just had to remember not to forget how to use the bloody thing. That's all. Video is optional, by the way. Um, totally up to you. Uh, so yeah. But uh, what's been up with you, Ian? Yeah. Um, I don't know how to turn on video. There's a camera thingy that's uh, somewhere. <laughs> it's uh usually you mouse over the main screen. Uh, I think you have a desk, a laptop, um, and so yeah, the, you mouse over the main screen, and there's a camera button, and it says turn on camera. But anyway, I don't understand it. Never mind. Yeah, it's not required. Fine. So yeah, what you been up to? Um. Okay. So I have a whole list of things I that, that I wanted to cover tonight. <laughs> Yeah, fun. I, uh, so first of all, I've been working on my comic Legend of the Swordbearer lately. I don't know if I've mentioned that in a really long time, mm -hmm. but I've been doing new artwork for that. Uh, so that's what I was doing today. Um, lately, well, lately I've been listening to Tarzan of the Apes. Nice. Uh, at, on audiobook and every time I listen to that I think wow I really relate to this character and it's really strange I hear you because it's like I haven't been raised by apes far from it I haven't I haven't spent any time in Africa I didn't even grow up that rough but it's just like I don't understand modern society, and modern society does not understand me. Sure. But do you also uh, relate to Frankenstein's monster? I haven't read Frankenstein. That's worth a read. I need, I need to make time to read that. Now. So, yeah, what's on your uh, big list of stuff to get to? <laughs> yeah, yeah, those were... Those were the two big things, and then I had something else that 
Oh, uh, Sarah Levesque sent me a bunch of really cool books that she found at a used book sale. Ooh, so that, yeah, that, that was pretty cool. What'd you get? Uh, The Allegory of Love by C.S. Lewis. The Pilgrim's Regress, also by C.S. Lewis. Last of the Mohicans. Not by C.S. Lewis. (laughs) Not by C.S. Lewis. No. Yeah, I I want to make AI uh, ChatGPT write a root like a chapter of Last of the Mohicans in the voice of C.S. Lewis. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a great idea. Oh, now I'm going to do it. Okay, while we're, while we're talking, go ahead. <laughs> and, uh, she also said... Uh, what? I mean, continue. She also sent me a uh, Douay Reams Bible. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, that's, that's like a really old niche translation of the Bible that was only used by Catholics and then it kind of it kind of went out of style about the same time as we stopped Protestants generally stopped using the KJV so uh there are a few there are actually a few Catholics that I know that are <laughs> Douay Reims onlyists okay. it's kind of, it's kind of funny it came out around the same time as the KJV right around the 1660s um, so, it, and it's translated from the Latin Vulgate. So it's kind of like a, a weird niche translation of the Bible, and I didn't have one, and she had two, so she said, oh, okay, I'll just throw this one in. That's cool. So are all Catholic English Bibles translations of the Vulgate? No. I'm not an expert on it, but, uh... I know that they use the RSV and the NRSV, which New Revised Revised Standard and New Revised Standard, which are translated in conjunction with other denominations like Lutherans and and whatnot, and those are those are translated from a variety of texts, including the Textus Receptus, um, the Masoretic text and um, the what is that? The Greek Septuagint, the Septuagint, Sep- Septuagint, the Septuagint, um, like the Apocrypha, are you can only find those in Greek. <laughs> so the uh, the original Hebrew texts, if they ever existed, are long gone. Hello, TK. Interesting. Oh, TK is here. She is. She may still be muted up or now. Yeah. And then, to question if, if the microbot is talking. Oh, wait, for the splash. There was a What exactly is the point of having a microphone on your headphones if your computer won't take it? <laughs> we can hear you now. <laughs> These are the great philosophical questions. <laughs> So, okay, I got I got my chat GPT scene from Last of the Mohicans in the voice of C.S. Lewis. Was it? <laughs> uh, it's not long. You want to hear it? Sure. Yes. It's I am not really. Anyway, I pretty much. Okay, so 
Uh, I have not read Last of the Mohicans. You'll have to help me out if this is over my head in any kind of as the Monroe sisters stumble, as the Monroe sisters stumble through the dense forest, their spirits sank lower with every step. Cora, the elder of the two, took a deep breath and prayed for strength. She knew that her younger sister Alice was in shock and needed her more than ever. Suddenly, they heard a rustling in the bushes. Alice let out a gasp, and Cora's heart leapt in her chest. They turned to see three figures emerging from the underbrush: Hawkeye, Chingachuk, then and Uncast. The three men were like a vision from another world. Their clothing was rough and worn, but their bearing was regal and dignified. They moved with a grace and a power that spoke of a deep connection to the natural world. Hawkeye stepped forward and spoke in a calm, reassuring voice. We're here to help you, he said. We've been tracking you for days. Cora felt a surge of hope in her chest. These men were like nothing she had ever seen before. They, they seemed to possess a deep wisdom and understanding of the world that was beyond her grasp. As they made their way through the forest, the Monroe sisters couldn't help but feel a sense of awe and wonder at the power and beauty of the natural world around them. For the first time in days, they felt a glimmer of hope that they might actually survive this ordeal. In that moment, Cora realized that there was more to the world than she, she had ever imagined. There were mysteries and wonders that lay just beyond her understanding, waiting to be explored and experienced. And with the help of these three, these three men, she knew that she might just have a chance to see them. <laughs> I feel so bad for Sarah because she didn't get the the run up of what this is. That <laughs> this was Chad GPT's writing a part of the Last of Mohicans in C.S. Lewis voice. For what? So what we've learned from. <laughs> Exactly. Now what we have learned applies to our lives today. <laughs> what we have learned here is that ChatGPT cannot write like C.S. Lewis. Because <laughs> they think, wait, no, that's right now. It's specifically Lewisian to me. Uh, the, the, what the, what no. they were trying to do was was turn everything into metaphysics. <laughs> but he didn't do that. I know he didn't. But this is just there. <laughs> Hey, Sarah, another video. Wonderful. Video optional, folks. Yeah, video is optional. But, uh, like, the, oh, okay, so you say that. None of it did, like, you're right. None of it sounded C.S. lewis -y, But at the same time, it sounded like, like, bits and pieces of Lewis's language that were in, but it doesn't know how to distinguish between mm -hmm. beats. Right. So you have, yep. like, moment and then moment and then moment but there's no way to string the moment right together because with lewis <laughs> careful like this type of language here but that's followed by this type of language and it yeah yep we, we, we uh ian was telling us about the books that he got and it was like this one by c.s lewis and then this one by c.s lewis and then last of the mohicans and then we said not by c.s lewis but what it <laughs> was <laughs> 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 the idea to write chat GPT to tell it, hey, I reckon last of the Legends is C.S. Lewis. <laughs> now, now, what would it do if you asked it to write it like Tolkien? Oh, oh goodness. No, no. <laughs> I won't read it unless there's any like specific highlights, okay? Just continue on going back to whatever we were going to. Oh, what about... What about Chronicles of Narnia in the style of Robert E. Howard? <laughs> I could be shy. <laughs> or it could be really terrible. 
How about, <laughs> since you mentioned Tarzan, how about Tarzan in the voice of J.R.R. Tolkien? Oh, there. That sounds good. good. Okay. Oh, there's Sarah. Hi. <laughs> uh, how did you get the video to work? Because I can't figure it out. I hit the button. So on the left side, <laughs> you see all of our names. At underneath that, there is a little like bar with connection, and there should be four buttons. One looks. Oh, like there it is. Okay, I'm stupid. <laughs> no, you're not. You just don't use Discord regularly, like me. Because I'm this is cordially challenged. There he is. Please rewrite C. Or wait. Yeah, who else has something to say? We're going to probably have to, if we have a bunch of people who are sharing something, we're probably going to have to get to that fairly soon. Um, I know Brendan's bringing something. Ian, you're bringing something? I really have anything to bring. That's okay. Anyone else? I'm going to over here working on my school yearbook because I volunteered to do that back in October when life was easy. Can't show that. Yeah. Picture is pretty oh, rubbish. A little blurry, but I do see it. I think you shared that one on Facebook, didn't you? Uh, no, not this one. This one, the first one. Oh, okay, yeah. That, that looks good, man. That's really cool. Good stuff. Not fully inked yet. I'll probably be working on that while we're talking. Sounds fun. Give you a progress report, man. From it along. I sent a my concept for a D and D slash fantasy ABC alphabet book for friend for that's kid friendly, but also for older people who play D and D, uh, to my editor, and my editor is my sister, <laughs> because she is a PhD student and or was it my editor is Sarah? Yep. But anyway, I just I do that. Yes, you do that thing. But I, it's in still like super early, rough concept, but I got it all written out and I'm like, I need to send this to someone before I send it to, and to get the words finalized before I try to do any drawings. And by try to do drawings, I mean hire someone to do drawings. <laughs> because after a certain point, I'm just like, nope, can't do that. <laughs> but I can. Uh, what? What? <laughs> one one paragraph of Tarzan uh, in the style of Tolkien, supposedly. Conio. <laughs> and so, with the strength and determination that belied his age, Tarzan set out on a perilous journey to find Jane and claim his place among the humans. He knew that the journey would be long and difficult, but he was willing to risk everything for the chance to be with the woman he loved. <laughs> That last line was not Tolkien. No, yeah. not at all. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> what we've learned today. I have no fear of Chat GPT Good. taking over my job. Goody, better name. None. Go. What Chat GPT is really good at are BuzzFeed articles. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> That's because there's no thought process put into that. Also, BuzzFeed going out. Business. I can't Surely they're having problems. <laughs> so. Oh. <laughs> yeah. But have, you seen, have you seen their stock price? The, the BuzzFeed stock price graph? It's just up, 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 up. 
plateau. No. I don't great. Love it. Blat. I don't pay attention to anything related to that. To be clear, TK or Sarah, do you guys have anything that you're sharing tonight or no? As far as work? Um actually I can if no one else Well yeah, you have Brendan so far and no one else go ahead. So Sarah, did you have anything? You good? Um, I'm totally happy to let TK go. Um, I could probably dig up something that I haven't worked on in a bit, but, um, We'd love yeah, to I, it if you want to. I'm sure I could dig up something after TK goes. Okay. All right. Well, we got Brendan as well, so we'll go start with TK. Does y'all good with that? Yeah. Let me just grab some water real fast. Sure. Absolutely. No, you're not allowed to hydrate. It's only the most important thing to do. Gosh. The main thing I've been using the this particular iteration of like a chat GPT thing has been for YouTube descriptions because I don't want to write them anyway. And they actually do they actually do a pretty good job of doing that podcast descriptions, that sort of a thing. And I I end up having to change one or two things because it decides to add in information where there is none. <laughs> uh, stuff like that. That's the main thing. Like, um, it, uh, for example, I didn't say what what uh, what things were in my folk and fairy tales series, and it said although I kept it because um, I do have one of the things um, from the magical world of Cinderella to the adventurous tales of Robin Hood. I I haven't written a Robin Hood thing yet. I'd love to do a Robin Hood thing in the future, so I left it in. But it didn't have it, you. I know, right? Uh, just to, I have not to, for shame. I have so many. Robin Hood's hard, man. My next one is Thumbelina, and it's going to be a 50-poem epic. Uh, it's like a big story, little girl, and type thing. It's going to be really good. I mean, there are already a lot of, like, folk songs about Robin Hood that you could pull from. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> so Robin Hood's definitely on my list. I think the next two are going to be Thumbelina, Beauty, and the Beast. Um, but then I might get to Robin Hood, maybe. I love Robin Hood. He was one of my favorites growing up. So, um, all right, TK, you're back? Yep, I'm here. All right. We, yeah, let it rip. Okay, so this was a story I wrote for a short story contest run by my friend Lisa Slain. I did not win. <laughs> But this is going to, these characters and this setting are going to appear in some capacity in my upcoming novel I've been working on. Okay. Read you an excerpt of what was basically kind of an introduction thing last month. This is taking on the um, urban fantasy setting. Okay. The title is Fun Times at Swampies. This place used to be a place of fun and laughter. The whole mall was. Now it was a decaying mass of sepia-colored ruins at the horrendously polluted Lake Albion. Thias Jackson shone his flashlight around the arcade-slash-restaurant known as Swampies, where he had spent many happy days playing the games and eating pizza with his friends. In fact, the same friends were around him right now. Kira Ash, Watt LaFontaine, Ella Barron, and Dolores Gordon. Five musketeers, they had been called at school. They had been sent to salvage whatever they could by the new owners of the intellectual property to be used in a new, bigger location. Ooh, this place is creepy, Kira's voice echoed. We used to have such fun here. 
said Dolores, who was more courageous than the rest that had gone further into the old restaurant. He isn't a half of it. Let's get some lights on. The owner said they were still connected, said Lamont. Yeah, my dad's getting something behind me. It's, it's okay. He's ready. Bella. Boy in the Dragon Ball Z shirt turned around to look for the missing girl. Bella! He shouted. Just then the lights came on. Four remaining young adults all let out shrieks of surprise. Bella, don't do that! Howled Matthias. You should see the looks on your faces! Bella cackled. They now had a better look at the oddly untouched arcade. And what would think that somebody would be in here waiting for copper anyway? Observed Dolores. Everything's right where it was when they closed. Hero wandered over to the doors to the kitchen. Yeah, even the kitchen's intact. Instead of them stood a small stage where five figures stood covered in sheets. Next to the stage sat the prize counter and checkout line, where Dolores had been. Let's check the animatronics, said Bella. We should be able to salvage those. And most of the cabinets, said Lamont, dealing with a Pac-Man machine. Cabinet worked life. <clears throat> What do you know about that? It works. Hey, Lamont, I don't want to interrupt your second childhood, but give it a hand, will you? I don't want to be here after dark, said Akira. What's the matter, Akira? He's Dolores. Afraid of the lady in black? No. Stopped Akira before folding. Yes. It's just a story, said Matthias. Done a ton of research about her. Know that she's not real, Miss Lamont helping remove her sheet from one of the animatronics. Well, fairies aren't real, Matthias confidently. Even if they were, they don't wear black. How do you know? Maybe there's goth fairies, joked Bella. The group stood back to admire their handiwork of uncovering the animatronic band that put this place on the map. Bumpy the Frog, Francis Feathers, Papa Platypus, Shelly the Turtle, and Orville Otter all were the finest animatronics this side of Disneyland, even better than ones at other larger chains. Bella looked critically at the robots. Well, the platypus didn't make a whole lot of sense. I'm convinced that God made the platypus just to mess with us, said Lamont. <coughs> Excuse me. We should run the diagnostics, because Akira's right, we shouldn't be here around after dark. This isn't the best side of town, said Matthias. Bella climbed up on the stage, followed by Dolores. The control room was behind a false wall on the back of the stage. Yell and tell us if they're working, boys, called Dolores. Boys stood looking around while the girls worked backstage. The faint wall was so thin they could clearly hear what was going on. Floppiness? Look at this computer! I think there's dinosaurs younger than this thing. Ouch. Okay? Our rat must have nibbled this wire. Pass me the electrical tape, will you? Boom! Darn it! We should smack it. You're kidding? Look at this plastic! I'm afraid to breathe on it! Oh, there we go. There goes nothing! The frog jerked to life with a hiss of hydraulics. The robot stuttered and choked as it warmed up. Finally, intelligent wor intelligible words came out. Howdy, folks! I'm Swampy, and welcome to Swampies! Boys cheered and exchanged high fives. It's alive! Alive! Matthias shouted with a cartoonish evil laugh. Running Francis's program, called Dolores. Bird blinked and called out, Yee-haw! I'm Francis! 
They're in house of fun, kids. This must have been when Francis was a boy, said Lamont. Paul Platypus tapped his foot and strummed his banjo. Don't be shy, Paul, said Swampy. Say hi to the kids, faced of innocence. Girls stuck their heads out of the control room. The boys' eyes went big as dinner plates. They knew this pre-show by heart. Paul wasn't supposed to make a rump was supposed to make a rumbly noise, and Swampy would remark that he didn't talk much. At no point did Paul ever say anything like that. Let's have a glitchy disc. Move on to Shelley, said Dolores, clearly shaken. Okay. Shelley, the drummer, rattled in her seat and spouted something in what sounded like Latin. That ain't right whispered Lamont. Just calm down, guys. It's probably some kind of prank, said Matthias, trying to put on a brave face. Orville Otter was the last one to go, the bass player. He moved his head and chattered, Bring me children. Girls came out and looked worriedly at their friends. There was no ambiguity in what the robot said. They were all witnesses. Still look in the back rooms. Must have been, we must have the wrong floppies, said Bella, giving the robots a wide berth birth, excuse me. Yeah, that must be. Let's go. Thias looked at his friends. They were all terribly shaken up. He smiled bravely and opened the door to the back rooms where the storage and offices were. For two rooms, one marked management, the other marked props. They had the end of the hall, painted in a fading blue and yellow, a third door. Over the door was written, The Smile Room. The smile room? Read Dolores. There's something not right about this, said Lamont. Aunt's right. We need to get out of here, Akira worried. Just check the rooms real quick, said Bella. I'm not leaving until I figure this out. Okay, but make it quick, Lamont muttered. Though the rooms were small, all five crammed into them, unwilling to be alone. Search of the manager's office and the prop room turned up nothing. Stood at the end of the hall, staring at the smile room door. Forrest gulped and walked up to the door. Bella, I don't know about this. Are you a man or a mouse, Akira? She swung open the door and turned on her flashlight. The room was quite large, but the only things in it were five arcade cabinets covered in tarps. Beard, Forrest's voice echoed through the room. Beard, Della, nothing has not been weird, exclaimed Lamont. Everyone came into the room and pulled out their flashlights. Doris grabbed a tarp and pulled it off the cabinet. Yixixar? I never heard of this game, Dolores said. He jiggled the joystick and it blinked to life, revealing a pixelated image of a tentacled monster. It's like a bullet hell game. I don't remember these, said Matthias. I wonder why they're not out on the floor. They're not plugged into anything, observed Bella. Some guys? A sort of panic entered Akira's voice. Look down. The quartet looked down and saw a disturbing sight. A pentagram painted in red on the floor. They looked at each other for a second before Matthias called, Everyone out! Girls first! Out! Out! Run! The five ran pell-mell out the door. Bethlehem and Dolores first. The five ran through the restaurant as the robots shrieked, Come and play with us! Ran through the abandoned mall. Doris tripped and fell. Akira, who was close to her, stopped and pulled her up on his back. They ran and they didn't stop until they reached the doors to the parking lot. Thias held the door open for his friends, shouted, Go, go, go! He counted heads as they ran out to the darkening parking area. He was relieved to find the gang all there. 
You okay, Della? Ended Akira, laying her down off his back. Uh, yeah, I think I'm okay. I just twisted my ankle. Tried to put weight on it and fell again. Ouch! Lamont looked at each of his friends. What the heck was that? He exclaimed. I don't know, Lamont. Said Matthias quietly. You're the answer to all, all that freaky stuff. I'm the wrong color to be investigating this, man. He shook his head. It was all just a theory before. Up in the distance, there came a sound of singing, which I will not attempt because I cannot sing to save my life. I never will marry. I'll be no man's wife. Friends froze, and as one looked toward the lake, somewhere a dog barked. I expect to live single for the rest of my life. From the marshy grasses and scraggly trees came a figure, a woman wearing a long black dress with bell sleeves. She had a long black veil and a crown of silver stars and carrying a mirror in her hands. The shells in the ocean will be my deathbed. The lady in black, whispered Akira. The fish in deep water swim over my head. She paused and looked at them. She was pale and her big dark eyes stared right into their souls. Children, do not come here again. Beware the demon in the waters. We're too scared and astonished to answer her. She walked up into the grasses singing. Cold blows the wind of my true love. Cold blows the driving rain. I never had but one true love. In the greenwood he was slain. Matthias and Akira picked up Dolores and they ran for their van. Font and Bella on their tail. Bella jumped into the driver's seat shouting, Get in the van, get in the van, get in the van! Font climbed in shotgun. Matthias, Akira, and Dolores climbed in the back. Bella slammed on the gas, swung the van around. Akira gave what would have been a comical scream under other circumstances and drove onto the highway. When they had put enough distance between themselves and the mall, Bella pulled over and stopped the van. Daddy, what do we do now? She asked. Better call somebody. Who, the Ghostbusters? Shinakira, I don't know yet, but we'll come up with something. And that's the end of that. Well done, ma'am. Well done. I remember you sharing that and us workshopping that. That was fun. That was, uh, that was great. That was very uh, goosebumpy. Well, and I mean that positively. Cool. Yeah, I mean that positively. It felt very uh, goosebumpy. It was also reminded me a little bit of the Wally McDougal series of the way the kids interacted with one another, um, and also. Um, I mean, obviously, like, the Five Nights at Freddy's thing that's kind of been a craze lately, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, uh, I mean, I think the highest compliment you could get is someone says, oh, I didn't even think of Five Nights at Freddy's, so that would be really good. It's about, like, the, I said it was, like, a combo of Five Nights at Freddy's and Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Yeah, that's the feeling I was going for. I like that. Success. <laughs> yep. Yep. I think I I agree with Joshua. Now that you say that, from what few Goosebumps books that I've read, he did he does sort of have that kind of vibe to it as well, which the way the kids it yeah the way the kids interact is very Bill Myers to me. I don't know if you ever guys of River Red Wally McDougal or the Bloodhound series. Um, Bloodstone? Do you mean no Bloodhounds? It was a detective brother and sister. Uh, Bill Myers, he did some stuff for Adventures in Odyssey, but he wrote a lot of, like, um, what is below middle grade? Uh, elementary. Yeah, like, it's blurring the line between elementary and middle grade fiction. Um, uh, comedy fiction. 
uh, mostly, but there was a, a series called Bloodhounds that he did that, uh, Bloodhounds Incorporated, that really reminds me of that. It was like a brother and a sister and their dog, and they solved mysteries and stuff like that. And the spooky mysteries reminded, reminded me of that a little bit. I've never read that. I've never read any of the stuff that you're referencing to. I love you. Anyone on? I thought it was great. It was not. It was unlike anything I'd ever read. So, has anyone? Any, can I reference McGee and Me and get anyone? Yes. Okay. Bill Myers <laughs> created McGee and Me. Okay, so this is oh. who created McGee and Me. This is just like book. Is he had like two fairly, two or three fairly big book series as well that were. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I read. I read several of his books, but. I didn't realize that he created McGee and me. Yeah. The, the Wally McDougal series was the My Life As, at the, dot, dot, dot. Every mm-hmm. number book was titled My Life As, a smash burrito with extra hot sauce, you know, a bunch of other goofy titles, you know, with really grotesque mm-hmm. covers. Yes, I recognize the covers now. Mm-hmm. What were you saying, Brendan? No, I just thought I, thought I heard uh, TK trying to say something while you were talking. I just wanted to make sure that we got what was said, but gotcha. Any other thoughts on TK's thing? I think she's definitely on the right track. I like how polished it is already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so it's the character re- a, a, a character interactions are really organic. They feel like real kids. Um, and I, I was impressed by that particularly. Like it really felt like real. And and stupid real kids, you know what I mean? <laughs> I love them. I was like, uh, this this is the I, if I was uh, eight or nine, I would be like, oh, these are the cool kids. And then like every you know, and the, the, any older than that, I'm like, wow, these guys are like, <laughs> yeah. It's funny because at least one of the people who it's based off of definitely one of the cool kid in high school even though even though like now he has a huge following on youtube but (laughs) oh boy well let's see um i just pulled something up that i can get into but that's more of an idea conceptual thing i want to get to sarah's i want to get to brendan's who wants to go first well i'm just looking at the time yes ready over what you, you need to go. You need to go first, Brendan. I don't. I don't need to go first. I just. But I just want to make sure that you know, I got four pages right, and so I don't know if it's going to take too long. Go for it. I mean, we can record as long as we want to record. I'll tell you where to stop. You know, I'd like to get everyone's stuff in here. <laughs> Broadcasters can be longer. That's fine. Right, that's fine. Just wanted to make sure that wasn't overstaying my welcome. Honor. So, last time, uh, I introduced Fjolin, um the commander, kind of the captain a little bit. Um, but now, um, that was the first half of the first chapter I, I attended. Um, this is going to be the second half. Um, so Fjolin, it where you last left off, the cat, uh, the commander just gave um, Fjolin, who is on Farseer, um, uh, basically a job. Uh, Fjolin's job is to find three scouts, um, look at uh, the enemy forces, try to find out as much information about the enemy forces as can, and try to locate this thing called a start. That's all the information that we're given at present. Um, so, we're going to start with Fjolin beginning his work.
Okay. Minutes later, Fiolan was ready. Three concentric rings of guards surrounded him, Ander and the young captain standing next to him. He sat, cross-legged on the grass, and unlinked the black veil that was tucked in his hood, letting it fall down so its face was covered. The chain that held the censer was woven around his hand and dangled loosely, the scent from the incense wafting upward. He interlocked his finger, pointing the index into a triangle, and setting it in front of his face. Then he locked his body in that position, as he was trained to do. How comes the hard part? The unintended thought whirred in, but Fjolman pushed it aside. He shut his eyes and began to focus, systematically every sense he could. He felt his hands trembling, unaccustomed to the weight of the sensor. An exhale. Uh, excuse me. Relax. The spasm subsided. Focus. The wind, the ocean waves, the sound began to fade away. Silence grew. A water droplet dripping from a shallow dripping into a shallow puddle in a cave. The sound did an echo. Was the flat ground eater. Focus. The taste of instant from his mouth from before disappeared, but the slimy sensation of it sticking to his mouth remained. Focus. The grass had no texture. It was no longer cool and damp. Focus. The drip ceased. Focus. Just focus. Feel. The projection of a farseer did not always require them to empty. While there are many different factors, the general rule is that the farther or more complex the task, the more distractions needed to be eliminated. This level of magic, which commonly was known only as ritual, had the farseers spiritually project their senses out of their body. However, since the senses were tied to the body, the farseer never sees as we often would describe it. Fiolan began to orient himself to his new state of perception. He sensed two silver warmths beside him, the captain and the commander, and thirty or so other silver warmths um, were the soldiers that he had seen. He knew who they were. He knew what they were. He sent a pulse out and touched each of the warmths with his mind. He, it wasn't strong enough for them to notice, but that wasn't the point. First, he shaped the captain, relying on his memory to form. The speed at which this happened was unknown to Fiolin, but by the time he was finished, his mind had calibrated to the and to the others, and all the others were formed into the form of the soldiers who guarded him. All right, art, art done. Fiolin focused and planted a mental seed in the spot where he was, knowing he would be able to return. He grew out of the seed, extending his branches until a silver bird alighted from his mind onto a he let his mind rest inside it and proceeded to send it out, flying in the, into the pitch-black void around him. As he flew, he remembered the map and sought the earth below. The plants, the water, the animals, the life, everything unfolded before him. He saw the spirit of, er of everything before him. Every living thing was revealed to him in what most would call sight. Soon, the whole island lay before him, though not all of it was revealed. That would require him sending his senses closer. So he did. Silver warmths appeared, shaping themselves into humans. He passed the outer perimeter of the camp and was well into the forest when the first scouting party came into. As we approached, he kept replaying the names of the faculty to his eyes. Scarfram, Dios, Morlost. At the third name, one of the silver warmths turned darker, becoming more calm, then seemed to burn a bit. Names about the curve clock. He put, ah, Vanduald. 
as it allowed them to find individuals easier. This color shift showed that he had found one of his Jolton flew closer, releasing his hold on the imaginary bird and letting it, and reaching out to Morwalt. He careful he was careful not to let its presence show. People tend to react aggressively if they think their mind is being invaded. And upper he tend to pulse out, a thought shading into the sound of his voice. More life. The commander stopped and raised his fist, the whole patrol stopping at the order. He pulled arrow and knocked it, and the soldiers did likewise. Dylan has got had got his template. The magic of Parseerns was limited, but he had a few interesting traits. One of these tricks was being able to create minor illusions. Translucent, it wouldn't fool anyone. However, it would create it could also create sound. Any memory the Farseer had access to could be replayed. Image of the Farseer conjured uh, uh the Farseer could conjure could be shown. The second trick they could perform any of their magic outside of their usual usual range by linking with a host. While this link need not be voluntary, it was often easier if it was. Thankfully, Fionn only needed to do a simple projection of a Farseer in a row and give it his voice, so he didn't need much. Since people did not like sharing their minds, Farseers were trained to be able to do this without intruding or being noticed. Fionn melded just enough with Morloth to be able to project the image in front of him, all the scouts started and raised their bows, but were disciplined enough not to shoot. They wouldn't have done anything if they had, but at least their pride wouldn't be bruised. Villains projected his voice with the image. The wolves are hungering, Morlaw. Villain used Morlaw's ears to hear the information. It wasn't necessary, but it was easier. Farseer should have known. Morlaw didn't say, but he didn't lo but he did lower his weapon. Found a Halberian patrol. Could have taken them out, but Igrath said not to engage. He spat on the ground with obvious disgust. Waste of opportunity, if you ask me. Called on a knife and quickly drew on the earth floor. It was a crude map of the western coastline, but to his credit, it was accurate. We scouted the patrol routes. They thought they could hide from us on their big cats, but that didn't work. Brennan, cat, welcome, Abigail, real quick. Oh, shit. Just say hey to Abigail. How are you? Hello. Hello. Oh, uh, okay. That's cool. Just Brandon's in the middle of his reading. Uh, TK went a little bit ago, and we got a couple more. Do you have anything, or, or no? No, I just wanted to pop in, say hello, and see how everybody's doing. Yeah, totally. Sigurat to you. I didn't want to interrupt Brendan, but just wanted to make sure you knew where we were, because he's got a little bit longer one that he's reading through. So, uh, Brendan, you can continue. Right. Something felt off to fuel. One of the worms seemed to be dimming. He cast his mind over and felt it. It wasn't dying, but it was shrinking away, as if he wanted to hide something. Theoen planted a little seed and returned to Morloth. His rough map was completed with the details he had found. To his credit, it was good information. Excellent work, Captain. I will inform the Lord Commander. I will inform Lord Commander Navarre immediately. Theoen memorized the information on the map and promptly disappeared. He felt scummy being connected to that violent mind for so long. He likes to fight way too much, he thought to himself and, focusing for a brief second, returned it to his mind. Returned his body to that initial seed he planted by his body. Yolan was still somewhat afraid of the commander, so instead he melded with the young early. To his surprise, the young man's mind reacted well and even seemed to notice his presence. I do not know your name, but inform the commander that Cropton Morloth has been found. The young man started, 
displayed the information. Dylan then projected Morlock's map, and after a moment, heard Egraf's affirmation that he had copied the information. Dylan left and pulled himself back to that previous scene. The scouts had moved on, working their way back on their patrol route again. Dylan carefully moved in and searched for that sure. find it. The desire to shrink away, the nerves, the feeling that something being wrong. It didn't take him long to find out what it was looking for. Morlock had lied about not engaging the edge. Apparently, it was an entire squad against one lone Haldarian He dotted full of arrows, and Morlock soared through his throat. The tiger was taking out first, ambushed back next to them. Everyone carefully extracted himself from the memory, making sure to leave no trace. Held sick, but he had to move on. It was war. Won the commander when the time came. He soared upward, heading northwest. More Silvermorn. More people and animals. He flew closer, seeing different men, women, and animals. These were clearly war parties, and had these very uh, uh, and and had made very quick wooden fortresses to protect themselves from infantry and night. Given the fact that siege weaponry is difficult to transport on ships, this made a certain amount of fact. He continued north, asked where the commander's map had any information, and saw more fortress camps. <clears throat> Near the shore was a bright silver light, which he approached, revealing itself to be a great many silver lights. Dylan shrouded his mind in arcane energy, shielding it from touching any of the mines, and sent his senses well. The Haldarians were efficient, establishing a small fortified city on the coast, with multiple fortified outposts, far outposts farther in, in the mainland, in old Ickley months. That's a run-on sentence, okay. Carefully engineered walls, many to facilitate their various cavalry. There were plenty of other buildings housing workers who forged weapons and armor, sewed leather goods, and performed the other actions necessary for not just an army. Rise. Killen slowly floated through the city, keeping himself shielded from their minds. He did not want to accidentally reveal his presence, which, while a common, was not impossible. He found a large building at the center of the the Great Hall, where the leaders gathered. Cautiously, he pushed himself through the wall, looking around. Once his senses were inside, the little had filled with many silver warmths, some milling about, others sitting and eating. At the far end stood a number of individuals, pointing at something on the table. Next to them, standing on the table, was a short, iridescent warp. Colors shifted and swirled like an opal gem on, in bright light, orange and blue and turquoise and sea green. Upon seeing this, his stomach dropped. No, weird. Dylan pulled his head back and flew as far away from the city as he could in a few short seconds. Norm's gnomes were connected to the realm of fairy, and so already they were connected more deeply. No, weirds, however, were those who were even more connected to magic, so much so they had the ability to use magic in now strange and undocumented ways. Dylan did not want to go what gnome put to you, and he dared not risk getting caught in this horrible state. From above, he took the eye. Yeah. From above, he took note of the approximate number of human life forms and pulled his senses back toward the center of the island. He focused on the remaining two names and sensed a burning sensation on the northern coast. Moving closer, he found another scout troop, Scaragrand, taking shelter in a natural cave by the sea. Dylan approached Bull, making sure to announce Scaragrand's name. It was more calm than Morlocks, and his men seemed to know what was happening. He had found the star gem. Scargrim's reported, relaxed, but respectful and curious. It's pretty obvious that we aren't the only ones here looking for it, though. Iranian mage hunters have been out of force, though Haldarians seem to be less concerned with finding it and more concerned about defending their settlement. 
He took a cross at one of the Confederacy bases, chimed in another of the scouts. Judging from the confidence, it seemed to be Scarab one second. They've been constructing quite a few anti-magic pylons. Seems they really want you out. Feeling. Thank you for the information. Lord Commander Kamar will be pleased. Go unbound and edit the spells. He began recalling his senses to his body, pulling in stealth to relay the information. As he flew over the map of the island, he sensed something, the briefest of seconds. He sensed a human running very fast toward the camp. He stopped and opened his senses more. Faintly, very, very faintly, he sensed the presence of a number of humans. He reached in, and it was difficult. It was like he was trying to grab a bar of work. Oh, and his senses just wouldn't stick to any of the small silver ones. Suddenly, one of the leads flared, going back to full strength, and fuel slipped into the mine. Immediately, he felt panic. Through the eyes of the scout, he saw wounded scouting party members running in full retreat, and they were being chased by a number of men from the Confederacy of Rania. The pursuers held strange weapons that Dulon had only heard of but never actually seen. And if not that enough, they were being chased by a blade gulp. The hulking frame was mostly humanoid. However, its arms ended in blades. It was made of metal wheels and cogs. Its knees were jointed backwards and deep, and the deep into the chest with the light from a crystal providing metal life. Fjolin panicked and pulled out of the scout's mind, and, still reeling from the desperation that they felt, threw his senses back to his body, using them to possess his body temporarily. Commander, the Elsa's unit is retreating. They're almost here. Are any of them a god? Fjolin was right. He wasn't a fool. And he wasn't weak. But even the most skilled of people will make mistakes and wills fail. Unfortunately, the effects of Fjolin's failure hold on the spell drastically behind the body. Its senses, being in temporary possession of his body, realized that they were not where they were while that while they were where they should be, they weren't how they should be, and immediately attempted to snap back along the route he took to get back to his body. Tillman, it to Fjolin, it felt like he was being pulled violently back to where his last location, which would make doubt, a blur of color mixed with darkness of all his astral perception made him feel what could be described as metal work. His mind felt something like whiplash as he flew immediately back toward his body and the mental strain overloaded his senses. The map and the world melted into a mesh of silver light that exploded into a disgusting multicolored mess as iron strain of pressure was happening. All he could hear was roaring, deafening sound that didn't actually exist. It simultaneously felt like eternity in a microsecond. Then the real world senses exploded into his mind as he properly returned to how his senses should have been in his body. The resulting overload caused his body to lock up. His taste burned, his mouth uncontrollably salivated to try to put out a non-existent fire. His eyes clenched tight, trying to block out the harsh real light that not even his veil could. His legs cramped, fiery pain shooting through his shooting through them up into his lower back. As he fell, every muscle convulsed and spasm uncontrollably. Mercifully, darkness clawed into his mind and he slipped into unconsciousness. As he did, he heard the cry of a woman calling for help. It echoed faintly, becoming muffled like he was underwater. And darkness and silence took him. End. Very nice. End of chapter. <laughs> Hold on, as I can mute myself, and let me unmute Ian. I muted him toward the very end just because his stuff kept coming through. But anyway, all right, so, um, but it's not your fault, Ian, it's just the computer. Um, I forgot you could do that. Yeah, it's okay, it's not a problem. 
Not as wrong. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know that I could do it either. But yeah, okay. And next time I'll focus on whoever's reading because apparently you can do that too. Um, but yeah, so one of the things, obviously there's this, I don't think this one's as polished as the previous one that you read. However, um, for all its clunkiness, I think that, that what is happening is fascinating. I like the ways that you're explaining, uh, in very, uh, visceral forms of magic, like how and what he's feeling. Um, one of the things that just clicked to me, I don't know why it didn't click to me last time, unless it did and I'm just forgetting, but, um, the whole idea of a farseer is essentially you saying, I want to write a strategy game in novel form <laughs> and being able to see like this big picture view of, of the situation, you know, um, and, and just making it work in such an amazing honestly amazing that concept is an amazing concept in my opinion not just the farseer as a farseer but the farseer as a tool to allow for the large overview of a strategy game story you know you know it yeah that's probably part of it it wasn't conscious but part of it was i wanted to have this character who could eat and not be a good fighter you know right right I don't know. It's I. It's just you always hear war stories from the from a warrior's perspective. You don't always hear war stories from a ability person's perspective. Right. Right. But enough. This is you, you don't hear about the guy in comp. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is the same world that my strategy game that I'm trying to make is made. So you're right. It is. Yeah. You're right. It's a strategy game story. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, the the other thing is, like you were saying, it's Signal Corps, the, what we would call Signal Corps in the army, right? Like mm -hmm. this is this is essentially like Signal Corps stuff he's doing, which is some not something that you really think about yeah. in medieval situations, but they have their own versions of Signal Corps, smoke signals, you know, all the rest, and that's a fascinating uh, uh, take that you don't really hear very often. I I love it conceptually. There's definitely a lot to do with that part of the story, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, and anyone else? I think the way that you've set up your magic system so far is really, really interesting. The, uh, Brandon Sanderson's second law of magic is the limitations are more interesting than the abilities. And I can see the limitations that you've set up with the Farseer abilities, and it makes it really, really interesting. And I, I like that I like the way that you described the pain of being shoved back into the regular senses as they ought to be, and I, I thought that that really worked. Nice. Thank you. Anyone else? Um, I definitely think you got some good bones going. Bones. Bones are important. Look straight. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've just had, like, muscle. You're <laughs> just apart why is it falling apart oh <laughs> <laughs> do you need some more joint lightness yeah yep yeah it definitely it definitely needs polishing i know but i'm not trying to i'm not trying to put a final product first <laughs> exactly. right exactly you got to get yeah, it out yep sarah abigail or ian you guys have anything well 
Um, I really. Uh, Sarah, love... you're on mute. Yes. Not looking. I really liked how uh, visceral it was. That's very sensory. That's um, one of the things that I like about Edgar Rice Burroughs. I talked about him earlier before a lot of you came on, is that his stuff is very visceral. So, um, on you for getting that right. Nice. Sarah, Abigail, anything? Nope. Cool. All right. Well, Sarah, did you want to move on to you? Are you ready for for your thing? Uh, how are we on background noise? We have noise. Okay. Well, um, I can go. That's fine. Find your spot. Do what? You'll find another Let me spot. At your spot. Hold that thought. Okay. Well, mine is more conceptual, so I can go ahead and go really quickly if that's fine with you. Cool? All right. So, I have a, um, a concept that's been sitting for a while now. I've been wanting to move into more younger person stuff. I kind of steered away from young kids stuff for a while with poetry because of Dr. Susan not wanting to be compared and all that other kind of stuff and everything that's rhyme is for kids these days and blah, blah, blah. Well, mm -hmm. I've, I've really noticed the need for that in children's entertainment, you know, especially because I'm trying to get back into that field, you know, and with this job that I've just landed coming up, you know, and everything, uh, we're still waiting on background check and other stuff on that, but like, um, should be not a problem. The, um, <clears throat> I have this, 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 uh, series that I wanted to, to, to kind of dive into each, uh, each poem is one episode. So it's really short kind of thing for little kids could be, you know, little, you know, picture books kind of a thing. Um, and it's just very conceptual uh, at this point. I'm having a really hard time because I want there to be milestones in each episode that you're looking forward to as a child, to stuff that gets repeated in ways and and, and shapes of uh, and turns of phrase that you recognize over and over, um, you know, episode to episode. But this is the the concept. Alexander Obvious is an ancient and learned mouse who once drank from the fountain of youth. He immediately made his wife drink and the two have been traveling the world having adventures ever since. In each episode, he is in a unique part of the world and is accosted by a different predatory creature. He uses his wits to get out of it and if he's given help in his endeavors by a kind creature, he grants them a thimble of water from the fountain of youth. We never see how he carries around the water. Um, the, and then the first episode, I have a title, and that's literally it at this point, because I'm still trying to kind of figure out some of these milestones of, you know, these these, these turns of phrase that, that keep coming in in you know, every episode. I can't figure out all of them until I start writing, but I want like one or two sorts of like, you know, this is where the story turns sort of thing. Uh, and the first episode would be called Alexander Obvious and the Copperhead Kerfuffle. And the further stories will have a similar title going forward. Um, if you have any, uh, basically I want to really like delve into the aesthetic and the feel of 
you know, a, a wild location. So like wild kids, wildlife books kind of tap into that sort of feel. Right. And uh, oh, yeah. go into, you know, uh, you've got a, a different kind of creature in each and every episode. So like Copperhead's going to be like South Carolina or something like that. Right? And you'll see Venus fly traps and you'll see, you know, all kinds of other stuff that's specifically native to that area, you know, and then do the same thing over again. You know, and it's just fun for the kids. They get to see the weird, cool animals and get excited about the turns of phrase and the swashbuckling nature of Alexander Obvious. So, um, thoughts, possible pitfalls, anything you're seeing that you're like, good, good, bad, whatever. I love it. Is, um, question, is uh, Alexander Obvious a uh, captain? in any of the local like armies so that he would then be captain <laughs> obvious that would be fun no <laughs> no I, I, i'm picturing a world similar to the rescuers where essentially you got this sort of underground world of mice and stuff but even then he's like this like unbelievable legendary hero you know similar to if we had like the apostle john still walking around like some people think he is yeah <laughs> right <laughs> like uh... <laughs> and like he's just alexander obvious is like you know essentially some mythical hero to all the other mice and animals and things so <laughs> i like it it sounds it sounds Dude. great yeah now i just gotta write it <laughs> Any of y'all ever read any of the Rescuers novels, just out of curiosity? I have not. There are novels. No, there were novels. <laughs> First one. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go find those now. Right? <laughs> They're going to be hard to find. I, I, um, go ahead. You mean it's not just Redwall? <laughs> well, I was going to say the, the, the Rescuers... Um, hit me really hard as a kid and I actually have a reference to it but the original rescuers I have a reference to the original rescuers in my superhero series my one of my characters you know she's like 17 she's been in the uh the foster care system forever and because she's um one of these people who has like this delayed puberty situation so she looks like a little kid they treat her like a little kid you know essentially and um the one thing that she likes to do to get away from everything is to shut her door and watch her old stolen from previous foster home cop clamshell white Disney copies of things like the rescuers. And I specifically reference the rescuers because of Penny, because of the long lost orphan, you know, type mm -hmm. thing going on there because she's 17. She's been that orphan for too long now. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Anyway, but that was just, I love rescuers. So yeah. Yeah. The, the uh, novels are written by Marjorie Sharp. I think there is, eight total i do not recall right now because there's also a supplemental series about bernard nice i, I didn't know that out i've been able to get copies through thrift books uh, um they they're all really good i mean they're, they're a little silly yeah <laughs> it was mid-century children's lit from england it's gonna be a little silly yes yes please <laughs> so, uh, Sarah, you're in a good spot now. Yes. Okay. Before you start, yes. Um, before you start, would you like a progress report? Yes, I would. On your art that you're working on. Let's see if we can see it. If it'll still pretty pixelated, but let me see if I can focus you. Hold on. 
Uh, focus. Yeah, 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 it's coming into clear clarity. Wow. Looks good. That's great. Digging it, man. I'm not. Oh, so it's an inch big. I can't comment. <laughs> what? She said it. I'm on my phone. It's literally big. I can't comment. Okay. <laughs> so, would would you like to, well, the story behind this page, or do you just want to go to Sarah? No, well, you could do the story behind the page. Go ahead. Sarah's ready. Okay. It'll take a second, right? <laughs> oh, these characters have been hiding in a cave. Um because they got into a fight in the middle of Dwarf Market. Uh, so they're wanted by the, the Dwarf Police. So they're hiding in a cave, uh, in addition to being wanted by the Dwarf Police for starting a fight in the middle of the market. They're also wanted because the main character has a magic sword that the um, evil queen wants. And the one character was a... I guess you'd call him a roguish halfling <laughs> as their guide, and he wakes up in the middle of the night and says, all right, we got to go. I can hear the dwarves coming. But he has superior hearing to anybody he can hear. He, he can hear when anything's moving inside of the rocks. So he hears the dwarves coming, and he wakes everyone up, and while they're diving down a hole, and they're about to land in the middle of his living room, essentially, and now his wife has to deal with them. <laughs> nice. Sounds fun. All right, Sarah, you ready to roll? Nathan, I like this part because I edited all of Ian's scripts before he was drawing them, so there, were con there was continuity and all that good stuff. I don't know if you changed much of it, but... I at this part I haven't changed hardly any. It's the later parts when they're in Anwen. I changed a bunch of stuff there, and I still have things that need to be changed. All right. Uh, I was kind of juggling back and forth what I I wanted to read. Uh, something that I started more recently, or something that I have. Um. Completed, and I think I landed on my Eowyn story, which I would only give you the part because it's super long. But, uh, yeah, it's more interesting than what I have written or because I haven't gotten to the climax of that yet. I just started. Um, but for my Aaron story, I really wanted to um, kind of explain Aowen's background because she's such a secondary character in Tolkien's world. And he gives her all of these emotions and it doesn't explain why exactly. So I gave her quite a background um and had a lot of fun with it so hang on how long is chapter one well i'll read chapter one and if you want me to read more i'm going to chapter two chapters aren't long but yeah so i just called it a when white lady of rohan 
And yeah. So chapter one. Eowyn stood at the top of the stair to Edoras, watching the company of horsemen grow smaller and smaller as they rode to protect yet another village attacked by orcs. Anyone who, any who looked upon the white lady had their spirits lifted by the show of grace, inner strength, and devotion to her brother Aemer and cousin Theodred, riding again into the distance without her. But Eowyn's thoughts were not about her relatives, but with one of the men riding beside them. Aldar, he was called, named after the great king of old. Eowyn had noticed him the previous year, when he pledged his loyalty to the king, as was the custom when a man came of age. Theoden King had heard his oath without comment, without feeling, without thanks. Eowyn had felt sorry for the young man, as she had felt sorry for many another warrior who had pledged his loyalty to the weak old man who cared not. But these men found able leaders in her cousin Theodred, in her brother Amr, and in their friend Elfhelm. The riders of Theodred and Amr were making a name for themselves, bringing succor to beleaguered villages and death to all orcs that crossed their path. Despite the differences in age, the two cousins were extremely close and often joined the Aeorid together. Aldor, like many another young man before him, found a place among them. Eowyn would have taken no further notice of him than any other, had it not been for a chance meeting. She had been practicing her swordplay in a dark, quiet area in Edoras. She had dulled the shines for Brulade, so no light would reflect from it and attract attention, as no one knew she had it. All she knew she had learned by copying others in secret, especially her brother, and fighting in secret with her friend Mabe in childhood. Daily she went through the exercises Amor had been taught as a child, she had been going through them when suddenly a man's voice from behind her said, You need to be aware of your surroundings at all times. Before the speaker had said three words, Eowyn had whirled around it and, and found herself pointing her sword at the young man who had made his pledge a month before. She looked to see signs of mockery in his face, but found none. She sighed. Thought that I was getting good at being aware, at least. Apparently not. Or perhaps I am not one of your cousin's scouts for nothing, he returned. She inclined her head, accepting the words as a balm to her ruffled pride. Alder at your service, my lady, he said, bowing. Would it be an accurate guess to see that no one knows about this? He nodded at her sword, and she realized she still had it pointed at him. Suddenly flustered, she lowered it, shaking her head in answer to his question. Not even Lord Aymer? Again she shook her head. They want me to be a lady, not understanding that the blood of warriors sings in my too. Alder nodded solemnly. Why should you not be both, as the shield maidens of old? Eowyn found herself smiling at him. That is my thought, too, which I argued as a child. But no one would hear me but my friend, not my uncle, nor my brother, nor my cousin. So I practiced all these years, watched boys training in secret all these years hidden all the books I could find on the subject all these years, but it seems for not to have startled me so easily. It was not all that easy, Alder admitted. I confess this is not the first time I've tried to meet you this way, but you always kept your guard up so I could not surprise you, until today. Years of training for the hall kept Eowyn's face nearly blank, but her eyes widened fractionally in surprise, and her cheeks turned a shade more red. Thank you for your kind words, she said, wondering how her voice could be so steady. He bowed slightly in response and said, Perhaps my lady could use a tutor or perhaps a partner as she practices? 
I would welcome your company and advice, Awen said boldly. I have long yearned for a way to learn more than these boyish exercises, despite their necessity. And thus began Awen's lessons in swordplay, held nearly every day that Sandrin's Aeorin stayed in the Great Hall. As Awen had long made it her habit to write out each morning and each afternoon, it proved fairly simple to meet away from the walls in the eyes of Edoras. And under Aldor's tutelage, Eowyn became stronger, faster, and better at wielding her sword. She was more confident and bold, and even began laughing with Aldor. That's the end of the first chapter. Am I allowed to say, aww? <laughs> 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 that, that's funny. That, that was great. Yeah. It was very, very well written. Really good. And leave it to an editor to have good writing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, boy. Plus, she said you'd had this one for a while, right? Yeah. I started this about years ago, and I was working on it uh, when I was out of work because I had surgery on my shoulder. And in COVID, I was working on it. So I finished it during COVID. Uh-huh. <laughs> I gotcha. So... When is this supposed to be taking place? How how long before the Lord of the Rings books is this supposed to be taking place? I believe this scene is set like five years before Aragorn shows up in Edoras, if I remember correctly. Because um, okay. what I, I decided reading her story as Tolkien has it, I'm like, okay, she's obviously depressed. Why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the reason ends up being that uh, you know, she falls in love with Aldor, and, uh, well, he dies, because... Yeah. That Every, has been... Everything's dying, yeah. That's that's kind of her thing. Everything is dying around her. <laughs> so, Aldor dies, Thandred, her cousin, dies, so there's this spiral of... Maybe you're not on me, Brenda, you're just quiet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, not, I'm just doing the Oprah with You get to... If you... <laughs> yeah, I was like, we have part of, uh, not respectful, whatever the word is. Irreverent? Yes, that it. Yeah, that is the one. <laughs> no, but like, I, that's, that's something that I think they touch on in the movie, and Tolkien definitely, like, touches on it more, but still, it's not, like, Eowyn's definitely more side character minus you know her big moment um but the the thing that i think is so amazing about what tolkien does is she is in a dying society and everything's dying around her and all she wants is the dying to stop and she feels like she has to kill people to make the dying stop instead of bring life like a woman does you know what I mean? Like, and she didn't really have a lot of place to do that, granted, until, you know, the House of Healing, um, until she finally let go of all of the, the pain, you know, and, and even after finishing mourning uh, Theoden fully, you know, um, but it was just, yeah, she just, everything was crumbling around her and she just thought, like, I just wanted to stop. I think that is the thing that they don't quite get in the movie. But I think Tolkien nails it in the book. Um, she just wanted it to stop. It wasn't about her own glory necessarily, although she longed for the. She felt the death of the glory of the of her of her forebears. 
right? She felt the death of Rohan, not that just, you know, of her people, you know, as a culture, right? And so there was, there was that too. Um, but then that's why she wanted to be shield maiden. That's why she wanted to, you know, why she fell in love with Aragorn, you know, is, is because like he represented everything that was dying, right? <laughs> you know? One thing I really leaned into when I was writing this was there's the line where Aragorn says, you know, what do you fear? And she says, I fear a cage. Right. Mm-hmm. And I really leaned into Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, you don't get first chapter, but <laughs> I don't know. Well, if everyone's good, I'm going to stop the recording and we can talk till whenever. Um, but we'll go ahead and say, since everyone shared, be your family's bard. Do not turn to the rims to the left and the Lord will be with you wherever you go. We'll see you next time in the trenches on the broadcast on Poets at War. Bye, folk. This is the broadcast on Poets at War, Inkling style discord chat, last Friday of every month. To join, go to joshuadavidling.com and click the discord link in the right-hand sidebar.